So as I said, we're looking at this section of Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 to 13, which is the letter of Christ Jesus to the church in Philadelphia. And obviously this is not Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, in the USA, but this is rather the ancient city in ancient Rome, which is now in modern-day Turkey, one of the seven churches mentioned in Revelation 2 and 3. And when we look at this letter, we see the general contours of what was going on in first-century Philadelphia. We see that the Christians had need to exercise patient endurance. This is implicit in verse 10. If you look at that, it says... Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial, etc., etc. What this, what this implies is that the church in Philadelphia, the Christians in Philadelphia, had been patiently enduring. Right? And what were they patiently enduring? That's the obvious next question. As the church in Smyrna experienced opposition from the Jews, which we saw was the case in Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 to 11. So, the Christians in Philadelphia are also experiencing opposition from the Jews. This is implicit in verse 9. Jesus says to them, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. So, the situation in Philadelphia is very similar to the situation in Smyrna. The Jews did not recognize the Christians, most of whom were Gentiles by birth, ethnically Gentile. The, those who were ethnically Jewish and held to the uh, traditional Jewish religion as they understood it, based on their understanding, which was incorrect, as we'll see, but based on their understanding of the Old Testament, they thought they were holding fast to Old Testament religion, they were ethnically Jewish, and they did not recognize the Christians, most of whom were not ethnically Jewish, but were ethnically Gentile, they did not recognize these guys as legitimate heirs to the promises given to David concerning a kingdom that he and his house would rule over forever. They did not recognize the Christians as Jews. If they were not ethnically Jewish, they were not Jews in the minds of these ethnic Jews in first century Philadelphia. They did not recognize the Christians as those who were to be admitted into the temple precincts beyond that well-known court of the Gentiles. And they did not recognize the Christians as those who had any share in the prophesied New Jerusalem to come. They viewed Christianity as a departure from Orthodox Judaism rather than the manifestation of Orthodox Judaism which was required by the appearance and the coming of Christ Jesus. Well, unsurprisingly, we will see that Jesus actually vindicates the followers of Jesus. Jesus vindicates these Philadelphian Christians. But in order to understand the richness of the imagery and the language of this letter, and in order to understand, therefore, the richness of the vindication that Jesus provides, we need to go back and review some historical 
material. So, I would remind you of 2 Samuel 7 and the events that transpire therein, where God appears to David and makes promises to him. Among these promises, 2 Samuel 7 and verse 12, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, that is when David dies, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And then verse 16, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So here's this promise made to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. But it's not just made to David. It's made to the house of David. Which doesn't mean that it's made to the brick and mortar, so to speak, in which David resides. But it's made to the household of David. It's made to David and his posterity. It's made to David and his offspring. David and his seed. And the the promise that is in view this morning is that there would be a lasting kingdom. Which the offspring of David would rule over forever. After David dies... After David lies down with his fathers, it will not be the end of David's house. In fact, there will never be an end of David's house. There will always be a son of David to sit on a throne and to rule over a kingdom. Nothing less than this is what God promises David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. There will be a lasting kingdom which... Therefore, implicitly, because God is the one who makes these promises, this kingdom will be endorsed by God Himself and protected by God Himself. Which means, if you follow the implications, follow logically to think through the implications of this, It means as kingdoms of the earth rise and fall. David's house will always have a kingdom to call their own, which will never fall. So as the the ancient Egyptians rose and fell, and obviously we know there's still a modern nation of Egypt, but we, we recognize there was a heyday of the ancient Egyptian empire where it rose, but then it fell. And there was ancient Babylon, and there was ancient Assyria, and there was ancient Rome, right? And nowadays, there's the United States, and there's China, and there, you know? You could, you could go back, obviously, between those and find example after example of these nations and these empires which rise and fall. The promise is that as all of these rise and fall, there will always be a kingdom belonging to David's house. This is what is promised in 2 Samuel Chapter 7. Now the Jewish people knew that not all of them were David's direct line. And therefore, that they were not kings. But, they believed themselves to be beneficiaries of this promise made to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. 
Because what this meant, the Jewish confidence was this. As nations rise and fall, the Jewish nation will never fall. In their minds, this was the promise. That as nations rise and fall, the Jewish people can never fall. And so, no matter how bleak and how dire things look, the Jewish nation will never fall because their kingdom was endorsed and protected by God. This was the understanding of the ancient Jews from the time of David, really onward. Now, if we fast forward, not quite all the way to when Christ Jesus appears on the scene, but fast forward many years from this promise made to David. So we're still in Old Testament times, but we're not in David's times. There was a situation where Assyria was threatening Judah. And Judah was basically the area in which Jerusalem was located. It was the area in which the Jewish people lived. And we read in Isaiah that many of the fortified cities of Judah fell. But in the midst of this attack, where the Assyrians are coming in and conquering Judah, God makes promises in Isaiah chapter 37, verses 32 to 35. And this is what we read. Out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant, and out of Mount Zion a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city, that's Jerusalem, or shoot an arrow there, or come before it with a shield, or cast up a siege mound against it. By the way he came, by the same he shall return, and he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it. I will defend this city to save it. For my own sake and for the sake of my servant, David. These are the words of the Lord. The king of Assyria is not going to go through Jerusalem and advance on his course. Rather, he's going to do a 180 when he reaches Jerusalem. And he's going to be turned back the way he came to return to his own country. He will not come into this city or shoot an arrow here or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mound against it because God himself endorses and protects this kingdom. Right? This was the Jewish understanding and the Jewish confidence. What is being promised here in Isaiah 37 is that the Lord's covenant faithfulness to David would be maintained. Yahweh's covenant faithfulness to David will be maintained via, by means of, the preservation of Jerusalem. Even though other cities in Judah fell to the Assyrians, God would make sure that there is a remnant preserved and that there is a band of survivors who take shelter in Jerusalem, that city which will not be overthrown, so that David will still have a kingdom. So that there will still be a kingdom which belongs to David's house, as God had promised way back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. 
Therefore, the implication is that at this time in history, it is safe to be where? In Jerusalem. Now, enter a figure key to our understanding of Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 to 13. We go to Isaiah 22 to meet this figure. His name is Eliakim. Isaiah 22, listen as I read verses 20 and 22. In that day I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. And skipping down to verse 22. And I will place on his shoulder, listen here. And I will place on his shoulder, Eliakim's shoulder, the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut. And he shall shut, and none shall open. Does that sound familiar? This is exactly how Jesus is described in Revelation 3. And that's why we're doing this. We're driving towards that point. Who is Eliakim, and what does he do? And what is this, the meaning of this key to the house of David and shutting and opening? In a time of war, when the Assyrians are coming upon the land... When the kingdom of David is threatened, Eliakim receives authority and ability to determine who belongs in Jerusalem and who's allowed to get in through the gates of Jerusalem. And Eliakim has the authority and the ability to say, Nah, you don't belong here. Get out. And he, to keep those outside the city of Jerusalem who do not belong. In other words, Eliakim is an arbiter of those who say that they are Jews. Tasked with affirming who is and who isn't. And who may come and take shelter in Jerusalem and who may not. Who may be beneficiaries of this promise given to David. That he will have a kingdom which will never be overthrown. He's, a, he's allowed to determine who's allowed to come through this gate. And be a citizen of this kingdom. And who belongs outside as one who is not a citizen. Now, with this in mind, we come finally back to Revelation. To the portrait of Christ Jesus given here. In Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 to 13. Jesus is said here to be the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one can open. Hmm. Jesus is an Eliakim. Eliakim was a real historical figure at this time of this Assyrian invasion. But he also was a a type, a foreshadow. He prefigured Christ Jesus. And as John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, according to the vision given him, draws on the language spoken of Eliakim so many years earlier, we are to see that Jesus is the one who says, who is a citizen of Jerusalem? Who is a Jew? Who is a 
beneficiary of the promise made to David so long ago. Who gets to be in that kingdom that never falls? Who gets to hide out there under the protection of the king? Who gets to be within those walls which will not fall because God Himself will defend the city? Jesus has the key. Jesus has the gate. Key to the house of David, to the city of David, to the kingdom of David. Jesus, therefore, has the ability to arbitrate between the ethnic Jews in Philadelphia and the church, the Christians, many of whom were Gentiles, as this dispute raged, well, who is really following the religion of the Old Testament? Who really has understood the message of the Old Testament properly? Who is orthodox and who has deviated and become a sect and a, a aberration of true religion? Jesus is the one who has the key to the gate. Jesus is the one who gets to say, you can come in, you can't come in. Jesus is the one who is able to open a door that no naysayers or mockers or scoffers or opponents can shut. And Jesus is able to shut the door in the face of anyone, even if He has a majority of other people behind Him supporting His claim and His endorsement. So what matters then is not what the Christians in Philadelphia say or what the Jews in Philadelphia say. What matters is what Jesus says. He is the Eliakim. He is the one with the keys. He's the one who gets to open the gate or close the gate. So let's look at what Jesus says here. In verse 9, He says of those who were the ethnic Jews who held to the traditional Jewish religion as it had developed at that time, by the time of the first century. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. As we saw a couple weeks ago when we looked at Revelation 2.9 in our study of the church in Smyrna, who are the true Jews? Romans chapter 2. Verses 28 and 29 says this, No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit. Galatians 3 and verse 29 says, If you are Christ's, if you are Christ's, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to the promise. So ironically, the ethnic, biological Jews claimed that the Christians were not to be considered Jews. And that the Christians did not worship the Jewish God. And that the Christians therefore were to be rejected as a perversion of the Jewish religion. When in reality, the only people who worship the Jewish God 
were the Christians. And the only people that were to be reckoned the true true children of Abraham were those that were Christ's. The most Jewish thing that someone could do in those days. And the most Jewish thing that someone could do today. Whether you are an ethnic Jew or an ethnic Gentile. Whether you are a biological Jew or a biological Gentile. The most Jewish thing that someone can do is to believe in the Messiah of whom Moses and the prophets spoke. In John chapter 5, verses 39 and 40, Jesus criticizes the Jews of His day. You search the Scriptures, He says, because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about Me. And yet you refuse to come to Me that you may have life. So Jesus says, look, those guys who reject me, they have rejected true Judaism. Because I am the fulfillment of the Old Testament Scriptures. I am the Messiah whom they have been waiting for and looking for and seeking. And they're constantly pouring over the Old Testament Scriptures thinking that they're orthodox when they have missed the point. And in opposing me, they are opposing my Father. Which means that they are opponents of God. Which is why Jesus calls them in this passage a synagogue of Satan. And interestingly, it is those who were not biological, ethnic children of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But those who looked and saw that Jesus is the Messiah who was promised to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, who was spoken of by Moses, who was testified to by the rest of the Old Testament Scriptures, it is those Gentiles and some of the Jews, to be fair, some of the biological Jews believed, but whether Jew or Gentile, it is those who looked to Jesus and trusted in Jesus as the promised Messiah, as He of whom the Old Testament spoke and testified and foreshadowed. It is those who believed in Jesus whom Jesus counts as being the true Jews, whom Jesus counts as being Abraham's offspring. And Jesus says in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 9 that He is going to bring the Jews around to see that. Jesus further vindicates this largely Gentile church in verse 12, saying that the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he he go out of it. Now if you were to ask an Old Testament Jew, how often shall a Gentile go into it? The temple. The answer would be, never shall he go into it. But what Jesus says here is, I'm going to take this Gentile who believes in my name, who trusts in me, the Jewish Messiah, who now has been circumcised in heart, who is now counted as Abraham's offspring and a true Jew, I'm going to take this Gentile and I'm going to make him a pillar in my temple and never shall he go out of it. So there's this great reversal. It's no longer never shall he go into it, it's never shall he go out of it. Furthermore, Jesus vindicates this Christian church in Philadelphia. 
indicating that not only are they true Jews who now have a right to be in the temple, but he indicates in verse 12 that he will write on him the name of his God, so they belong to God, the name of the city of his God, the new Jerusalem, we'll come to that in a moment, but also my own name. So in other words, they are to belong to God, belong to the new Jerusalem, and belong to Christ. And in belonging to Christ, what does Revelation 1.6 tell us? That Christ has made them a kingdom, priests to His God and Father. We, we are in His kingdom, but also, as Ephesians 2 says, we have been seated with Him in heavenly places. And in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 6, we read, Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with Him for a thousand years. So not only will these mostly Gentile Christians be counted as Jews and never go out of the temple, but they will be not only in the kingdom of the Son of David, but they will actually be so united to and identified with the Son of David by faith that they will actually reign with Him. In Psalm 72, verses 8 to 11, we read this. May he, that is the Davidic king, have dominion from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him, and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. The, the eschatological picture, the end times picture that we are given here in Revelation chapter 3 is that not only are, they, are these mostly Gentile Christians allowed to be in the kingdom, but they are given, as verse 11 says, a crown. And that, as verse 9 says, those who are outside of the kingdom, right, Namely, ironically, those who think they're in, the synagogue of Satan, the, those who say they're Jews but they lie, those who are outside of the kingdom, will come and bow down before their feet. You see here the picture is that the, these mostly Gentile Christians will come not only to have a share in the kingdom of David's house, but will actually reign with Christ Jesus. And that the rest of the nations will actually come and bow down before those who belong to Christ Jesus. In the midst of this struggle 
Jesus vindicates his people. And he encourages them that they have this great hope of inheriting the new Jerusalem, which comes down from his God out of heaven. That they will live with God forever in that new Jerusalem. And we read, of course, about that in Revelation chapter 21, right? Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. This is the hope of the Christians in first century Philadelphia. And because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, this is the hope of the Christians in Barbados. This is the hope of the Christians in the United States and in North Korea and in China and in Australia and in Russia and in Ukraine and in Canada and wherever else. This is the hope of Christians, that we are the true Jews, that we not only will be allowed into the temple, but we will be pillars there and we will never go out of it. And that not only will we be in Christ's kingdom, but that we will reign with him. And this morning's not the occasion to explain the fullness of what that means, but that's the biblical portrait that we're given. And that we will live with God forever in the new heavens and new earth, in that new Jerusalem, where all things have been made new and every tear is wiped away. This is what Jesus tells the Christians in first century Philadelphia, in the midst of their difficulty, in the midst of their opposition. As the Assyrians, so to speak, come into the land, as the war rages around Jerusalem, Jesus encourages these Christians, don't worry, I'm the one who opens the gate. And I'm going to let you into Jerusalem to take shelter there. And one day the Assyrians will be turned back the way they came. And there will be a remnant in Jerusalem. There will be survivors in Jerusalem. This city will not fall on this occasion because of Christ's, pardon me, because of God's covenant faithfulness to David, right? Metaphorically then, or not metaphorically, typologically then, it's as if we're facing Assyria nowadays. Right? And there's this war going on around. But because of God's faithfulness to set a son of David on his throne, because there is a kingdom over which Christ, the son of David, rules, because there is a new Jerusalem which will never fall, and because Jesus holds the key so that he can let us in, so that we can take shelter there and belong there, we don't have to fear. We can take heart and we can persevere as the war rages around us. There are two, 
little uh, ways I want to illustrate the difference this can make in our life. One is, my boys are past the age now, but one is when they were very, very small and I started showing them shows and movies which were not utterly simplistic, in which there were bad guys, and in which there was danger, and in which there was tension points and conflict. In the very, very early stages when I started to show them those things, I had to tell them, don't worry, the bad guys do not win. Don't worry, this good guy will survive, right? And once they knew that, then they could watch the whole movie without losing heart. But otherwise it was too scary and they just wanted to give up, right? When we understand the way things end, when we understand that after all other kingdoms have fallen, there is one kingdom which shall remain. That Assyria, the king of Assyria will be turned back the way he came and Jerusalem will stand. It gives us confidence to watch the rest of the movie, so to speak. Alright? Here's another one. And this, this one, uh, trigger warning if you, if you rightly care about animals and hate animal cruelty. Alright? But listen... There was this terrible study done, I don't condone the study, in the 1950s at Harvard University, where they tested how long rats could tread water before they would drown. All right? They put rats in and found that on average, rats would tread water for 15 minutes before they would drown. They took another round of rats and they pulled them out around the maybe 13, 14 minute mark just before the rats would give up when they were getting very fatigued. They brought them out and they let them rest a little while. Then they put them back in to tread water. Do you know how long those rats who were pulled out and then put back in lasted? Just take a guess in your mind. Or, or shout it out. I don't care. Go ahead. Alright, listen. 60 hours. 60 hours on average, okay? The first round of rats drowned in 15 minutes. But when they had been pulled out and put back in, they went 60 hours. This is the conclusion that the researchers drew. If, you, if there's no hope in sight, and you just think, I'm going to be treading water here forever, then you're probably just going to give up and drown. But if you, if you think at some point, at any point, someone might just reach down here and pull me out of this water, then you can go for a really long time. Alright? So Jesus says, the king of Assyria is coming, and I know it's scary, but don't worry. I'm the one who will let you into Jerusalem, let you take shelter here. And one day the king of Assyria is going to have to tuck tail and turn back the way he came and head back to his own country and Jerusalem will not fall. The point of it is so that we can tread water here, so to speak, for longer than we could otherwise. When we realize that Jesus is the Eliakim who affirms us and validates us and has been granted the authority and the ability to open and close the gates of Jerusalem for us. It can give us the courage and the patient endurance 
to continue treading water until he comes down and pulls us out of the tank, so to speak.